Welcome to the CSL Olympia podcast. In this episode, you will hear an opening prayer, followed by a talk. You can learn more about us at our website, cslolympia.org. Blessings. So please enter into prayer with me, knowing that there is right now, right here in this infinite now moment, only one, one mind, one heart, one life. It is all that there is expressing in, through, and as every possibility, real and imagined. It is that which demonstrates as love, light, life, power, peace, beauty, and joy. And it is this divine presence which fills all space and time with those God qualities. And I know that everything that I encounter throughout my day is imbued with this divinity. It is in the winter snag that invites more life to emerge from its perceived barrenness and the swoop of owl across the blue dark night, and in the gathering of potential in this quiet season as the sun's motion in the sky closes in towards stillness, this is God, this is spirit, this is the divine. And if there is not a spot that this divine presence is not as it must be, there could be, a no, there could be no other way then I know that I could not be left out of that equation. No, I am deeply integrated within the divine. My DNA is its scripture. This I am consciousness pulsates and permeates down to the very atoms, molecules, and cells of my being. And I know this to be the truth for each one present here today in whatever capacity that may be, that each one is awakened to that inherent wisdom within that is and has always been their divine birthright to know. I know that each one is a divine representation of God in their physical form, branches fractaling out from the tree of spirit, lighting up for the world to see. So it is from this place in consciousness, from this place in awareness, that I speak my word for the spiritual community here today, that through this service today, that each one is able to more finely tune their instrument that which is the very essence of their being. And I affirm, know, and declare that each one is unshackled from any perception of limitation, untethered from any feeling of lack, and unbound from any notion of separation. Rather, each one is enlivened by the symphony of God qualities that have been brought together here today. And that each one is able to rest in the joy that is always theirs to know. And so it's with great gratitude and thanks that I speak this word. Gratitude for the truth that is known and for the law that always says yes. Yes, my beloved, may it be so. And so I release this word into that law knowing that it is so and has always been. And so it is. Please join me in two minutes of silence. So we are in our fourth week of Advent, the Advent season. We've been kind of following this, this um, 
spiritual model, spiritual model. And so we started originally with hope. When we're in the darkness, when we're in despair, hope is a good place to start. It starts to let the light in at least a little bit. Uh, we moved from there through the process of deepening our hope into faith to where we arrived at peace. And peace is when we know that we're, we're okay, things are okay, all is well. There's a process of trust that begins to happen. From that last week, we expanded into, because when we have that feeling... We expand into, nope, yes, joy, joy. And so that was what we celebrated last week. And today we celebrate love. And love is that kind of core that's at the birth. It's the opening that allows things to be born, to be born in love. And so it's the consciousness necessary for all new birth that supports spiritual growth. You know, in traditional Christian churches, uh, today is, uh, there's a reading called the Magnificat. And uh, it comes from Luke's story of what Mary said as she visited her sister, or excuse me, her cousin, uh, Elizabeth. And those of you who know me know that my view of Luke's gospel is, is kind of a little... Um, well, let's just say that as my Bible teacher said in ministerial school, it's the most creative of the synoptic, the first three Gospels. In other words, it's got the most made-up stuff, right? One of my favorite things to ask at this time of year is, is how many magi were in the stable where Jesus was born? And if you're not thinking, if you're kind of going you know, from the old past, you'll say three. And the truth is that the magi only appear in Matthew's Gospel, and they were at the house where Mary lived. And... Luke doesn't even say that Jesus was born in a stable, just laid in a manger, which could have been or not been in a stable. So it's, it's this whole made-up story. But it's, it's, there's an archetypal truth to all this that's really worth listening to, taking deeply, and, and, and working with. And so this powerful uh, lesson from the supposed utterance of Mary, and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, for he has regarded the, the meekness of his handmaid. And that's a powerful, powerful statement. This utterance expresses the idea that we are expressions of this divine light. We are expressions of this. We magnify the divine. And when we live in humility, when we live with our bloated nothingness, as Emerson calls it, out of the way that wonderful things can happen. Wonderful things can begin to flow. Hmm. So this candle of love encourages us to live as love and to let that divine love express through us, to magnify our souls, not necessarily our intellect and our stuff, our limiting ego. So in this tradition, I invite us to ask ourselves, what am I willing to love into birth? What am I willing to love into form in my life right now? Where am I willing to get my limiting views out of the way and let my soul magnify my highest self? And I invite you to sit with that this week as a question. Where am I willing to let my soul magnify the divine that I am? We good with that? Play with that? Great. 
Before I start today's talk, I want to briefly follow up from last week's talk. A, uh, a question came up, let's put it that way, um, about what I meant when I said being open. And when I said being open, open doesn't mean being a doormat with no boundaries. Okay? And so I want to simply specify what we are as a community and, and this center. We're not a church of whatever, whatever. We're not a church of whatever. You know, I, I think Flip Wilson used the term of the church of what's happening now, back in his comedy routine back in the 60s and 70s. We are a religious science center. That's what we are. We teach the, the teachings of the science of mind, which was written out by Ernest Holmes, and we teach the teachings of others that are in that vein both before him and following him. You know, We're open at the top, but we have a foundation. And... It's important to have that foundation, to have that idea of who am I, both as a community and even personally. You know, to have that idea. And, and oftentimes that idea is evolving. You may have noticed that, that the idea of who you are today it might be different than who you were 30 years ago. And there may be things that, that you know, are, you've chosen and you're clear that you're choosing them. I had a teacher who used to say, uh, every year she, she asked herself, do I still want to be a religious scientist? This is a minister, by the way. And every year she said, yes, I still do. And has for, I think, probably 40 years now. So there's things that we say, you know, this, this is who I am. You know, if you come and offer me a wonderful steak, you know, I'm not going to take it because most of you who know me know that I don't, haven't eaten red meat or poultry in over 30 years, and that's just part of my choice and who I am. I, it's not negotiable at this point in my life. Who knows? Someday maybe it will be, but not today. If you offer me chocolate, I'll take it. So we have, as a community, an identity and a core. And one of my roles as the minister is to keep us in, in tune with that identity and that core. So, And it doesn't mean that we think other practices are wrong or bad or anything like that. They're just not in alignment with what we teach and what we're about. So being open doesn't mean that there's no conflict, there's no discomfort. Uh, Jim Lockhart, in his book, Creating the Beloved Community, says... Safe space in spiritual community is not about eliminating discomfort. It is providing a, safe, a supportive space where we can experience the inevitable discomfort of deep personal introspection and spiritual growth with support and understanding. And so that's what we're about here, is to not eliminate discomfort. We can't. You know, as you and I change, we're going to bump up against our bloated nothingness, and that's really what it is. It looks like it's out there, but it's really our bloated nothingness and our places where we're limiting ourselves, and if we want to expand, we expand. One of my teachers used to say, love brings up anything unlike itself for the purpose of healing and release, and that's important to remember. Do you need a glass of water, sweetie? <laughs> I won't speak anymore. I'll just say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> So, shaking that off, moving on to today's talk. This is our, our uh, last month of the year. We've been looking at living everyday wonder in community. And, um, and our theme today is Ode to Joy. And what I really want to talk about is the festivals of lights that are happening all this month. You may have noticed, this whole month has, contains all sorts of celebrations of light. December 8th was celebrated as Bodhi Day, which some of the Buddhist communities celebrate as the day of the enlightenment of the Buddha. Okay? The enlightenment. This evening is the beginning of Hanukkah, celebrated as the Festival of Lights. 
Later this week is the winter solstice in which we celebrate the return of the sun, or as I like to say, our axial parallelism, parallelism rotating us back towards the sun. Since, as we know, the sun doesn't rise or set, doesn't go away or return, we move. Okay? And so we're just, you know, the, the scientific term is axial parallelism. Say it five times real fast with me. <laughs> and then we, this is followed immediately by Christmas, which celebrates the birth of Jesus, who is considered the light of the world by Christians. And then finally is Kwanzaa with its seven-candle uh, canara, which celebrates African-American uh, culture. So since today is the beginning of Hanukkah, at the risk of offending the um, traditional Jewish people in the, in the uh, community, um, I thought we'd learn more about it. I thought we'd also look at the streams that flow into, because streams flow into everything. You know, one of the classes that we teach in, in around science of mind is roots. What are the roots? What are the streams that flowed into Ernest Holmes being able to write this book? And so we're taking a look at the streams that flowed into Hanukkah and the Hanukkah story happening and to see how this archetypal story relates to us. And I want to thank Rabbi Ted Falcon from uh, Seattle for some insights into the backstory. Uh, I used to uh, attend his, his synagogue when I lived up in Bellevue, and, and it was a lovely meditative uh, Jewish community that, that just it was lovely to, to be in that presence. So let's begin with a little background of the story. This is a history lesson. So for those of you who hate history, just this is the time to... Okay. Alexander the Great, how many have heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, good. He was a Greek who conquered most of the known world, including Judea. And in uh, 323 BC, uh, he died, after which Judea became part of the kingdom of Egypt, called the, uh, I'm not going to even pronounce that. Anyways, became part of the kingdom of Egypt. And of course, as things go, Egypt became, you know, there's always a bigger fish, if you remember from um, uh, the first of the Star Wars movies, there's always a bigger fish. So they got defeated. Uh, by Antiochus III of Syria, which at that time was a Greek kingdom. Uh, he was head of some of uh, the... Uh, the people were called the Seleucids. And so Antiochus III wanted peace within Judea, so he let them practice the regular customs and just basically go about their lives. However, within the Jewish community, there were two opposing factions, kind of a... <clears throat> This might sound familiar. Conservative and liberal factions. Uh, you know, things don't change, just the people. One wanting to practice the old traditional ways and the other wanting to adopt the more open and free Greek lifestyle. They even build a gymnasium and competed in games in, in Jerusalem. And so basically there's the civil conflict, civil war almost happening until this, uh, the sons of Tobias, who was a, a faction favoring the Greeks, went to... Antiochus, to the son of Antiochus III, who was Antiochus the fourth, yes, to convince him to invade Judea, basically so that they could have their way, which he did in 175 BCE. Five years later, the sons of Tobias got kicked out of Judea by, of course, the faction that wanted to be traditional. So they went to Antiochus IV again and said, invade Jerusalem, take it over recapture it, which he did, very violently. He then looted the temple, built an altar to Zeus in the middle of the temple, ordered pigs to be sacrificed on the altar, and outlawed the practice of Judaism within Israel. Needless to say, this caused a bit of a 
revolt. Actually, a very large revolt. And by 164, three and a half years later, the revolt led by a family that had the nickname of the Maccabees, which means the hammer, or the hammer of God, uh, eventually drove out the Seleucids, Antiochus IV. Restored the temple, rebuilt the altar, and the flame at the center of the temple was relit. And the story of Hanukkah is that there was, when they got into the temple, they found there was only one cruise of oil left unsullied, undamaged, and it was enough to last for one day. And they started off and they lit the flame with what they had. And it would take seven more days to purify fresh oil. And the cruise of oil for one day was enough to keep the candle lit. Somehow the candle stayed lit for eight full days. And that was considered the miracle. So the eight-candle menorah, which we have back here, which I'm not going to light because Hanukkah starts this evening and we don't light before the, the festival. So during those eight days, during this festival, there is to be no lamenting or fasting. It celebrates. It's a celebration holiday. Would you be okay with a celebration holiday? It's considered a a festival of celebrating and rejoicing and praising God. And the story of the miracle of the light is considered to be, by many, a legend. And yet it contains an archetypal truth within an archetypal truth story of beginning in trust, beginning in trust, not necessarily knowing the outcome, but walking in faith. See, a whole lot of us in our lives, we want to wait till our ducks are all in a row, yes? Everything falls, the stars are in alignment, we got the money, we got the whatever it is that we need out there. It looks like it's all complete, so now all we have to do is just walk through it and, and, and you know, let it happen. But this is a consciousness on that, but we have enough to go the 200 yards down the road, and by the time we get there, we have another 200 yards visible. And so it's that consciousness of walking in faith. Rabbi Ted, though, also spoke of noticing that the whole reason for this miracle and the whole need for a miracle to intervene was set up by a lack of trusting God and by a lack of humility on the part of these two factions and looking to the Greeks instead of God to resolve their conflict. In other words, not walking the faith that they really said that they believed in. Besides me, has anybody else in the room sometimes done that? Not walking the faith that we say we believe in. You don't have to raise your hands. Okay. Take a breath. The really sad part is, you'd think they would learn their lesson, but no, 100 years later, uh, after the kingdom had driven them out and experienced expansion and growth and thriving, two brothers who were in rivalry for the leadership of the kingdom with each other, uh, each went to the Romans, saying, would you please intervene on my behalf? And the Romans said, yeah, we'll do that, all right. In 63 BCE, the Romans invade. 12,000 Jews are massacred. The high priests are struck down at the altar, and Rome annexes Judea. Which leads us, by the way, into where Jesus eventually shows up in the time of the Roman rule, yes? Okay. So as we contemplate Hanukkah, what can we learn? First, the inspiration from the legend. You know, most archetypal stories have uh, this sense of a mystical intervention, a mystical bestowal uh, as part of that at a crucial moment in the story. What if we could recognize that this mystical support is always present? 
We don't need to wait for this, this crisis where everything is at the edge. It's always with us. It's always within. And it's always all around us. And we can call on it any time. And we stop looking to lesser sources, what have been labeled false gods, and knowing this, what if we were more adventurous, undertaking the cleansing, restoring, and lighting of our own inner light, of our own temple within, even if it doesn't look like it will work out yet. But we trust spirit to guide this process. And this is not about taking stupid risks. But this is listening to that soul call within us and saying yes. See, archetypally, the temple of Jerusalem, and, and most of us who grew up in a Western culture, this, this is something that's, that's deeply ingrained in our archetype, right? Whether we grew up in a church or not, it's still there. So archetypally, the temple of Jerusalem and the holy of holies within symbolize our own temple, our own inner place of sanctity. Our place that go, and the Holy of Holies, that deep, deep place within that we go to. And whether we call it going for our inner self, whether we call it being in our sacred space, it's that symbol. And we all have it. We all have our own temple. And we all have our own Holy of Holies. Take a breath for a moment and just notice that within. You might notice it in your heart area. You might notice it deeper in your abdominal area. This place symbolizes our own inner place of sanctity. And we're being called on to replace the gods imposed by other cultures. And we all have gods imposed by other cultures. Those cultures might have been our parents, our teachers, our siblings, our friends, our uh, fellow students growing up. Last week we spoke about having walls that others started and we completed. So we all have these gods imposed by other cultures, which may have influenced us, replacing those with our own true sacred vision. In other words, with our own true, who am I really? What is the uniqueness of the divine that I came here to express really? And being grounded in that. Standing in the light, as that song went, we stand in the light, even in the darkness. There's a lovely Sufi story of a man who come, is thirsty and comes to a stream which is all muddy and he decides to pursue the stream upstream to its source and to find that he has to go into a cave and he brings with him his lantern to light the cave and finds the, the clear water that's coming from the source. We have to bring our light into the difficult places. Carl Jung said we, how did he say that, we don't experience light by imagining figures of light, but by bringing consciousness to the darkness. By making the dark conscious. And so that is what we're called to do in spiritual community. Is to, in the face of what looks like desecration of a temple, our temple, to bring our highest consciousness and light that and stand in faith. So to stand in the light and to light your lights, to let your soul magnify the infinite presence. So this week, three practices. Number one, ask that inner self, ask your holy of holies within, what needs to be cleaned, cleansed in my inner temple? 
What is it that is no longer serving me? Probably a belief system. This week I got to run up against one of mine, which is, I'll do it wrong and people will abandon me. I got to run into that a few times this past week. (laughs) To the point where I could look and say, oh, there's that thing again. It's like, okay, thank you. I am going to cleanse that out of my temple. I don't need it there. And then secondly, what light needs to be lit in my life now? What is wanting my love to give it birth? So what's blocking? What needs to be cleansed? What light needs to be lit? What wants to be birthed? And then finally, in the spirit of Hanukkah, rejoice and praise spirit this week. Rejoice and praise spirit. And we praise spirit by being our highest self, by being our most loving, lit up self. I'm not talking about alcohol. Lit up from the soul within self. Are we good with those three practices? Great. I'm going to close with a prayer that can be said with the lighting of the lights for Hanukkah. I'm not going to do it in Hebrew. I'm sorry. You're, you, no. I don't know if you know this particular one. Anyway, we kindle these lights for the miracles and the wonders. Do you know this blessing? Could you do it in Hebrew? It's written. Come on up. This one here. So we kindle these lights for the miracles and the wonders. For the redemption and the battles that you made for our forefathers in those days at this season through your holy priests. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much. During all eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are sacred, and we are not permitted to make ordinary use of them except for to look at them in order to express thanks and praise to your great name for your miracles, your wonders, and your salvations. I love that. We don't look at the lights to use them. In our culture, we are so trained, we've got to use something, right? Everything has to have a use and a function. Yes? Can we just look at things as sacred, just exactly as they are? and take a moment to step away from how does this use. So that's that quote. That's the quote from the blessing. We have an affirmation. Say this with me. I am light within light. My soul magnifies spirit. One more time. I am light within light. My soul magnifies the spirit. So it is.